Welcome to an episode of the award-winning podcast Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. The theme of the podcast is New York, with a focus on behind-the-scenes conversations with fascinating people who are making an impact in the world of art, design, and architecture. Richard Saul Werman, the founder of the TED Conference, is one of the most influential American architects and graphic designers of our time. Early in his career, he coined the term information architecture and has written, designed, and published 90 books on divergent topics identified by his singular passion of his life, that of making information understandable both for himself and others. His book, Notebooks and Drawings by Louis Kahn, is being reissued in honor of the influential American architect's 120th birthday this year. The Rochester Institute of Technology has announced the launch of the Berman Center for Understanding, Understanding, where one can learn how to explain anything and everything. So, Richard, I'm honored to have you on. Great admirer of your work through the years, of course, and, and uh, we met the first time at the TED conference in in '90s, and uh, that was an event that, uh, of course, made a great impression uh, on me. I had I was a consultant at the time, and I had two clients with me from. I, I've never had a PR person. I've never advertised anything. I don't do any. I don't promote any anything I've ever done. Uh, I've done about 90 books. I don't send them for reviews. I don't sell them to bookstores. I don't have a publisher. I just virally, my whole life is viral. Well, I remember that that when I went to that TED conference, it was like a smorgasbord of everything. And it, the one- It's just all my muses. I, I, I get no input from the audience. I don't ask for input. I have no board of directors. Yeah. I don't take advice. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do the thing. Uh, the only advice I take is my own. And I, I everything I do is based on what I'm interested in. Uh, I've just finished uh, in this last year. I did my first about, about a year, right at the beginning of COVID. I did my first piece of sculpture ever in my life. I'd never been trained in sculpture, and I've never did a sculpture. I used to paint. Now, I had painted before then, uh, but when COVID came, I ran out of frames. So, and I either throw them away or frame them. That's what I do, because I do watercolors uh, on the rice paper, so they're easy to throw away anyway. So I did, uh, I'd done a series of watercolors. I don't have an agent. I've never shown my things in a gallery. I've never sold any things, and I don't even give them away to my kids. So all my pain is a totally private thing. Uh, I'm an old, you know, an old Jew who hates as a hobby. <laughs> and um, so I started doing sculpture and the first one came out okay. So I did, a, it turned out okay. So I thought, well, I'll get it cast in bronze to celebrate that I did a sculpture. Since then, I've uh, done 18 sculptures. They're all cast in bronze this year. And by accident, just before the COVID, uh, this guy had his main bookstore in Carl Gables. Uh, he has eight bookstores. And he looked at the paintings and he really liked them. And he said, who did them? And when I told him, I had to convince him I did them because he really liked them and he didn't think I painted, of course. I didn't advertise. Ever. I don't tell anybody that I paint. Yeah. I mean, it's just like telling somebody you pee, <laughs> uh, which, of course, I probably tell people that more than I tell them I paint. <laughs> And um, I uh, convinced them that I really did him. He said, well, he just loves them. He would love, you should have, something should happen with these. I said, nah, you know, I'm fine. Yeah. I, I'm not, 
I'm not looking for things to do. So uh, about two months later, I got a call from next door to he, his main store is in a, uh, the old fire and police department of Carl Gables, an old, older building and very nice up. And that's his main store books and books. And uh, next door, immediately next door is a bigger building and it was the old city hall. So they had a complex. And the old city hall has been turned into a local museum. They don't have a collection. They have shows every once in a while. Not a fancy museum, but it's a very wealthy town. So they, you know, it's one of those things. Like there's a museum in East Hampton. <laughs> because it's a wealthy, wealthy area, they have their own museum. Yeah. But it's not a great museum. It's just <laughs> has some interesting shows because they're a wealthy town. You know what I mean. Yeah. So two months later, the head curator, she must have had her arm twisted. Uh, I wouldn't have come to see me because I am, as I described, an old rich Jew with a beard, you know, <laughs> doing uh, amateur painting, you know, on yeah. the beach. Anyway, she came and she fell in love with them, too. Uh, so I said, well, that's fine. She said, could we have a show of your paintings? I said, I guess so. Uh, I never thought about that. She, we're date, we have a date in this August, September and October for a show of my paintings. But in the meantime, I've done 18 sculptures, which I like doing better than the paintings. So the show is going to be my 18 sculptures and oh 35 paintings. And the whole museum is just going to be me for three months. Wow. So that's a completely new thing that happened, I guess, because of COVID. Wow. Somewhat. I wouldn't have had all the time to do the sculpture. And I really enjoy doing the sculpture. That's incredible. So you can add that now to your to your various uh, occupations that you've had through life, because I found this very interesting. Your wife <laughs> explained in one interview that it's very hard to explain what Richard does. It is especially hard for Richard to explain what Richard does. And then you said that you had five lives. You were trained in architecture. Um, you've had a life in archaeology, writing guidebooks, medical books, running conferences, and a life in information theory. So now you can one add. more, one more. I have one more. Yeah. Archaeology. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, seriously. Do you have you ever heard of uh I don't know, you might not be from Sweden, maybe you don't know anything about the Mayans. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, well the largest and the oldest of the Mayan cities yeah. is Tikal. Yeah. T-I-K-A-L. And uh that was a complete jungle, but they knew it was there. And in 1958. Uh, the University of Pennsylvania uh, uh, Archaeological Museum and the Guatemalan government, the Museum Archaeologica in uh, Guatemala City, had their first year decided to have an expedition and basically get cut down the jungle and try to discover what was there in the edges of the city. And um, I went there and I was 21 and I... Um, I'm 86 now, so it's a long time ago. <laughs> well, you just certainly and, don't look it. <laughs> and I uh, mapped one third of Tikal. Wow. In the jungle with two, uh, there was three of us mapping and we each mapped a third. That's incredible. So now you can add an artist to all of that through your well, painting. I, 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 painted, I painted in when I was in the university a little bit. I didn't take, uh, I mean, I was not, a, I was in architecture, not painting. So I painted watercolors for the three years, three of the years I was in at, at uh, University of Pennsylvania. And they had a show, an annual show, uh, and I won first prize in watercolor every year. So I knew I could paint. 
And, uh, but then I didn't paint for 60 years. I stopped as soon as I graduated and I've had, I've had other things to do. So that was sequential. But when I did guidebooks and information theory and ran conferences, you know, I ran conferences Yeah. and did architecture. I had an architectural practice and a graphic design practice and a medical conference and did a whole book, a series of books on medicine and a whole series, the best-selling book ever on the Olympics, uh, on sports and things of that sort. They were all done at the same time. Yeah. Well, I'd like to, to mention to our listeners, though. You... They're all the same thing. And the reason I started telling the story was because of something you said, which I now remember. <laughs> as soon as I finish a painting, I no longer identify that I did it. I observe it then. And when I'm finished anything I do, I observe it quite probably a teeny bit different than somebody else because I know intellectually I created it, but I don't feel it. I don't have the feeling of authorship. Huh. I intellectually know I authored it. And that's the same with a book that uh, I don't feel the pride of authorship. I, I don't think about them as mine or my paintings or my sculpture. I look at them like I'm seeing them as somebody who came to visit. Many artists look at their uh, their art work as their kids. I mean, they are extremely involved with it. But with you, it's you, you do it, and then you. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> you distance, you distance yourself. But um, so you said that you don't do promotion. But I would like to do, to do some promotion for you because now you're re-releasing the notebooks and drawings by Louis Kahn. I am not. I am not, <laughs> but I do not reprint my books. Okay. So a person who I did not know by the name of Steve Croder yeah. uh, called me uh, about a year ago. And he said uh, that this book of mine he had seen and he thought it was extraordinary. And he knows it's been out of print for 50 some years. And what he does, he's a, he was a, he's a graphic designer, but he doesn't do graphic design. That what he does for a living is living is he finds books that he thinks are terrific, uh, sort of cult books, yeah. you know, icon, and he reproduces. He does a Kickstarter, and he uh, uh, does them in facsimile. I said, he said, could I do that with your book? And I told him no. <laughs> uh, I have no desire. I have a copy of the book. I don't need another copy. Yeah, and I don't give a shit if anybody else has another copy. Uh, and I'm not in the book business. You know, I'm in my next idea business. Yeah. All I care about is coming up with the next idea. I don't have, as I said, I, nobody's asked me to do anything. Nobody's ever asked me to do a conference or a book or be on their board or anything. I, I'm a reclusive person. Yeah. Um, not on stage. I'm very comfortable on stage, but reclusive when I'm home. And uh, so he says, well, he always has a reader's guide, a small reader's guide that he puts with the book. Okay. So I said, I don't think so. And then he called me back. He said, I wondered if you'd change your mind. I said, I'll change my mind on the following thing. It's your project. I will give you everything I have on Lou. And I have some, a lot of stuff on Lou that you don't know about. I'd already given a hundred of his drawings to the archives at Penn. Uh, I have right here, I have one, two, I have five, five of his drawings there. And I have a maybe 10 pages out of his notebooks where he wrote that I held back. I didn't give to pen. I'll give them. They'll get them when I die, I guess. Okay. And um, so I like looking at one very important drawing of his, and I'll give you all my help and I'll put you in touch with people you can call and I'll give you advice. If you want to take it, if you don't want to take it, it's fine because you're going to do a facsimile. So I have nothing to say about that. 
But if you make the reader's guide as big as the book, and the book is oversized, mm-hmm. and thick on cheap paper, and you have in it lots of stuff that nobody will ever publish in another book, stuff that is not photos of his buildings, not finished drawings, but his process, uh, and comments of his children, and comments by me, and comments by Moshe Zafdi and other people. If you have comments in there, and you have stuff, and you go to the archives and get scraps that were saved in the archives of yellow trash, the way architects draw on that yellow trash uh, tracing paper, that nobody else in their books, and there's lots of really wonderful books on Khan. I mean, there's a really library now of fine books on his projects and whole books on different projects, yeah. you know, Kimball and the British Museum and Salk and DACA. There's whole books on beautiful books. I don't want to do another. I don't want to have it beautiful. I just want to have it the stuff that shows how he thought. If you do that and not try to make it beautiful and do it the same size, so, but not with hardcover, not with a linen cover, not gold stamped the way the other one is. Uh-huh. It, really, it really is just a companion piece. It's more like a telephone book. Yeah. And uh, so he said, okay. So I said, then, okay. And that's what's coming out. Wow. Well, that's exciting. Um, so you said uh, about Louis Kahn that uh, he will, something to this uh, fact that he will live with you forever. What did you mean by that? Well, people, uh, you have people in your mind that you think about, and you have moments in your life that have, I mean, not everybody does. Yeah. I, I, I take that back. Some people, I'll just go back to the beginning. Some people have mentors. Yeah. Or some people have Uh, people they think that have changed their life. I mean, it's very wonderful from the stage <coughs> that people say, I owe everything to my mother who was as great. But I'm not talking about that kind of shit. <laughs> talking about somebody who you might have liked, you might not have liked, uh, but somehow there, there's something about the way they thought or their values or uh, something that added the kind of angels of clarity to your life. Yeah. Some of us are lucky to have had. Yes. I am such a person and I'm lucky to have had Lou. Huh. Now, the interesting thing about Lou is that many, many, not just me, many of the people in the University of Pennsylvania and University at Yale, Princeton, students, other architects who didn't work for him or with him, but knew him, uh, people who have met him and talked with him, they feel the same way. There was something about him uh, that was magic. He wasn't a good speaker. He wasn't that nice a person. Uh, <laughs> he was jealous of everybody getting work and he didn't get any, he didn't have very many skill sets, social. You know, I mean, he had skill sets. He didn't, he wasn't socialized. He wasn't charm, charming in that way. Yeah. He had a magnetism and he always, he told without, he told in a, naturally, not by saying to be perfectly honest or to be frank. You know, those are all throwaway phrases. It means that everything else you said wasn't. <laughs> exactly. Uh, without 
trying to impress you, he always spoke his truth. Some of it, nobody understood. So he had this, if you describe him, it sounds like one of these woo-woo guru guys living naked up in the Himayas. And he had an aspect of magnetism and he was short. He had a shrill voice and terribly scarred. He was not an attractive person. Huh. Uh, but there was something that made him different than anybody else I've ever, I had ever met. His conscience and his permission for me to be more of me, uh, not to do things in his style or copy him, yeah. but his permission to me personally hmm. uh, changed my life. Now, I was more fortunate than others because we became really good. We became friends or we, I think, had a love. We loved each other in yeah. some way. Yeah. I couldn't talk about it, nor could he, because of the jealousies in the office. Everybody wanted a piece of Lou. <laughs> yes. They all wanted a time. But he and I secretly went to football games and baseball games. <laughs> and and then he planned my life. <laughs> At one point, I lived, I worked for him for three years. It's only things like this I'm finding out now because somebody's doing my biography. Uh-huh. Uh, a major biography. You wow. know, it's an 800-page biography. And in doing that... He's researching. He's a real academic. He has several master's degrees and research degrees. Yeah. I found out by putting things together, some of it between his children, like his Nathaniel, who did that wonderful film on him, my architect, said that my little book, which was the first book I ever did and the first book ever done on Lou, was Lou's favorite book. Wow. And the last thing he bought before he died on his way to the airport to go to India, take that trip and come home and die. Yeah. in Penn Station in New York, was two copies of that book to give to people. Wow. And that book had been out for 20 years then, or 10 years then. Uh, that, that He allowed me to do the book in the first place, and that I picked out the drawings myself. And he says, what are you picking out drawings in my book? For You know, he said to me, I said, well, that's the whole idea of it. He said, well, then he got it, and he sat back. He said, well, I'll be very interested to see which drawings you pick out. <laughs> he took it as a learning thing for himself, yeah. right? Yeah. So that would be interesting to see what Ricky picks out. And it would be different than what I would pick out, so, but it's interesting in itself. Wow. It was that kind of acceptance of learning. Yeah. Of finding patterns. I worked for him for three years. He says, you should teach now. I started work for him three years before that on a Friday. He sent me to, I was 23. He sent me to London to do an impossible project after I'd worked for him for two days. Yeah. Uh, and knew nothing about the, you know, what I was going over there for or how to do it. And I was there six months. He set me up to put me in sort of impossible conditions, which helped me. And then I put myself in impossible positions of survival positions yeah. in a period of my time of my life between 18 and 23 or four. And those five years changed me from mentally slightly soft and having, you know, gotten up to that point without starving in the streets or doing things that I felt I would survive. So, uh, and he, half of those things he put together and half of them I put together. One thing I did after my freshman year had nothing to do with Lou. 
a friend of mine begged our way across the United States and back in two months. We'd be killed now, but we did it then. We begged all our food and got from coast to coast. Was that when you met Ray Eames? Yeah. How do you know I met Ray Eames? I do my homework. You know, I'm like you. <laughs> Wait, where did you find that? I didn't think that was no, written. You, 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 no, but I, I find uh, interviews with you, and uh, and I and I f- found that story very endearing. You know, it was very endearing. And then I worked with with Eames after that, and we used to kid about that. Ray and I, we we just laughed at that how smelly and how funny we were coming up to her place. And, but at that time, she just was invited us in. Now you would call the cops. I know. I was thinking about that. She said, why don't you come in for That's a different bath? different time. Yeah, well, come in for a bath. <laughs> yeah, she wanted me to have a bath. Now, I get an inordinate amount of publicity without trying yeah. at all. Yeah. You even get free baths and food. She fed I, I, you. I, I get food and baths everywhere. <laughs> well, you're best that way, Richard. You don't really need anything, right? I don't need anything. People give me things. <laughs> but then, so then you worked with uh, Charles Eames, right? Yes, yes, yes. How was that? I mean... I worked for Charles Eames. You don't work sort of with people yeah. when they're that special. The only two people that I worked for who didn't fire me were Lou and, and, and Charlie. <laughs> Charlie called me Saul. Uh-huh. He used my middle name. What does Saul mean? It's in 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 Hebrew it's it's Shlomo. So my name is actually Reuben Shlomo Mormon. My grandparents on my mother's side were kosher butchers. Uh quite poor, but they since they were kosher butchers they were quite immersed in Judaism. And my father's side of the family were cigar makers. Basically, they both dealt in death, cutting off heads of chicken and giving cancer <laughs> to people's mouth, you know. <laughs> But you have rectified that. You have given people inspiration and life and, you know. I, I don't give a shit. No, I don't give anybody anything. <laughs> no, I do. I, do, I am. I am uh, get past the first sentence because I'll explain it. Yeah. I am completely indulgent because I think it's the truth. I think the only thing I know and I probably don't know that as well as one could, is myself. Uh, I don't know what you're thinking now. And you don't know what I'm thinking. And you can't possibly know what I'm thinking, and I can't possibly know what you're thinking. Now think of me as being on the stage, and there's a thousand people out there. I can't know what they're thinking. I, I don't ever invite a speaker when I'm giving a conference. I'm giving an example. I don't ever invite a speaker to please the audience. Because I don't know what they're thinking. How am I going to please them? Yeah. And I don't care about pleasing them anyway. Exactly. I care exactly. about the excuse of the conference as I get to meet some people I want to meet. Now, when I do a book, I want to make it good for myself. I want to enjoy the action since I don't have a publisher and nobody has ever asked me to do any book. Yeah. I choose the subjects and I do the book. So I don't care about the person reading the book or literally how many it sells. Because I'm not in the book business. I'm in the business of having my next idea. Yeah. You were described in Fortune magazine as an intellectual hedonist with a hummingbird mind. <laughs> and they interviewed my wife. And one thing she said is that Richard would rather be uh, a brain in a jar uh, than <laughs> anything else. <laughs> and there's a certain truth to that. 
<laughs> yeah. You said something when we spoke earlier, I think it was last week, you said something. Once you've done something and you're good at it, what's the point in doing oh, it's it not again? being good at it. Once I do something and I figure it, I figured out how to do it, even if I could make some improvements to it, why bother doing it again? Uh, that's what I know most people do. Somebody goes to a publisher because they're expert in something and they get an advance so they can write a book about their expertise so other people can learn that expertise. But let's say person number two goes to a publisher and says, I don't know anything about this subject, but I'm interested in it. Would you fund it? Yeah. <laughs> so everything I do comes from my not knowing to knowing. The world is set up of people knowing and trying to know it better and getting an audience for it. I'm trying to learn something and then go on to the next thing. <laughs> yeah. It's a totally different journey. Yeah. My value is my ignorance. My expertise is my ignorance. I know more about my ignorance than you know about yours. <laughs> and that acceptance of my ignorance makes me more powerful than you. <laughs> Because I'm always seeking, I don't understand anything. No, and that has that is your basically your life's uh, journey that you want to make things understandable, right? Uh, and yes, and the miracle is that I've survived. Yeah, and and survived well. I mean, I'm okay. I really I have enough. Yeah. So one thing that I really like about you, Richard, is that you 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 love to put people together and and mix uh, sort of choreograph an exchange of ideas between between people. And we have to talk about the TED conference because you know people who listens to this they they want to know you know about the TED conference. So so how, how did that come about? TED conference the way it is now is completely different than the way it was. Okay, it's just different. So let's talk about TED one, TED two. I'll talk about the first 18 years and the creation. Yeah. Then from now on in, it's a different story. It's not bad. It's just different. And so I can't speak for it. Uh, it's not that I was right and they're wrong. It's just that I did it one way and they call it the same thing and paid me for it. But they do it a different way. So it's not a criticism. It's just a difference. All right. In my in trying to be not haiku, but minimalistic. I like to reduce things as much as I can to see if I can find an essence. The essence of Ted, for me, again, indulgent me, yeah. the essence for Ted was observing and activating nouns, N-O-U-N-S, kissing. <laughs> What? That's it. Is nouns, that? kissing. Yeah. Different subjects. Yeah. Nouns. Yeah. Talking to each other and kissing. Yeah. And seeing what happens in the pattern making as there is a convergence between different points of view, different subject matter, huh. different people. So they kiss. And sometimes the patterns that come out of that kiss form a whole new pattern and something new and an embrace. And sometimes an antithesis, and they see the differences. Not unlike, I don't know if you've ever heard of a man by the name of Carlos Gardel. No, no. Carlos Gardel uh, died in 1935 uh, in an accident in Chile on an airfield. 
in a small plane was the, another person he didn't like was in a small plane on that airfield and they played chicken with each other, not taking off and they crashed and died. That's not the big deal about Carlos Gardel. The big reason he is the most famous person in Argentina even today, dying in 1935 and playing chicken to his death is because he created the music and invented the dance of the tango. Oh. Hmm. And he is venerated even more than their fried cheese there. He's venerated in Argentina because that dance is the epitome of innovation. One of the major, there's only five ways of innovating. Uh, and I have an acronym A-N-O-S-E, the O, the O, the middle finger, right? The O. Uh, the O is the opposite. And that dance, and, and the opposite of things is usually a radical alternative. If you've ever had a creative idea in your life, it probably was, they call it out of the box. What it really is, is a radical alternative. What do comedians do? What is a punchline? A radical alternative. The opposite of expectation makes you laugh, but also is the breakthrough in many sciences, in investments, in starting companies, new products, creativity, new forms of everything comes from the opposites. Niels Bohr, the great physicist, small particle physicist, um, who had great, had terrible arguments with Einstein, but they were friends, good friends, uh, because he believed in, in uh, quantum physics and, and Einstein, as we know, didn't believe in quantum physics. But he said at one time that, I think during his, maybe his acceptance speech for his Nobel, uh, that when he had a profound idea, the opposite idea was also profound. Oh. <laughs> That's really smart. Yeah. Now let's look at the dance. The dance of the tango is people are violent to each other and love each other. They don't touch and they almost hit each other. <laughs> Improvise and yet they have very ordered movements. Uh, All radical alternatives you can do. Right? Yeah. So I like Carlos Gardel and he died in 1935, which is the year I was born. It is also the year when the Volkswagen first came out. Although the Volkswagen they've now found was copied from a Polish car. And it's also the first year that the Toyota came out. So people who were together in the Second World War, apart in the First World War, both had their people's car come out in 1934. Wow. And I was born. Wow. So. <laughs> that's, a, that's a beautiful story, I have to say. You know, that's... It's called technology entertainment and design. And I was thinking about that today. Why wasn't it technology education and design? Or is it education that comes out of all of this? You're opening up a time bomb with no fuse. It's just going to go <laughs> off. Learning, catch this because this sounds glib at first, but yeah. then I'm going to test you on it. Learning is remembering what you're interested in. Now, let's pull that glib phrase apart. Do you really remember anything you weren't interested in? over any long period of time. Uh, no. Do you remember sometimes things you didn't do so well, but you're interested in and you keep following them and, and you, 
you remember them. Did you ever do so-so in a course in school, but were interested in, you remember, did you ever do very well in a course that you weren't interested in, you forget it. Is basically everything you remember something that you are interested in rather than you memorize? So there's two words now, getting words down to simple things, nouns, kissing, hmm. memory, memorize. What we do and what our educational system is and cannot be saved uh, is the memorization of things you're not interested in, put down on a piece of paper, bulimically, you throw them up on the piece of paper, yeah. forget them. And then you go on to the next test. Yeah, It's a system based on the test of your memory of a subject you're not particularly interested in, developed in a book and approved in a one, one city and one group of people in Texas. Yeah, And that yeah. same textbook is used across the United States and it has nothing to do with learning. So there is a board of education It's not a board of learning. They're not interested in learning in school. They're interested in education. They're interested in memorization. They're interested in anything but the personal inquisitiveness and curiosity of the individual. Yeah. Teachers, not guides. They don't see the connection between everything in the world. If I was interested in cars as a 16-year-old boy often is, maybe girls are too, and I could have taken the subject cars and taken it from 16, when I was 16, 17, probably I started in 15 because I was going to be 16, get a learner's permit, 15, 16, 17, 18, all through school, all through my younger school years, I could have had one course called cars and it would connect to physics with the right guide, to chemistry, to different countries and different languages, to roads and road systems, different forms of transportation, uh, to why the road system and to cities and why the road system was different in different cities and the different ways of movement. And why is the car, the car wheels five foot, eight and a half inches apart? And why is a train wheel five foot, eight inches apart? And why is the Roman chariot with two horses, the wheels five foot, eight and a half inches apart? <laughs> and I could learn about history through things like that. Yeah. I could learn about chemistry. I could learn about all different motors and different kinds of electric motors and the history of the electric motor being before the history of the uh, the gasoline motor, and yet we think we just invented the electric motor for the car now. When I grew up in Philadelphia, Curtis Publishing, one of the big publishing companies, used to deliver their magazines to all the corner magazine stands by electric trucks. Uh, that, that was, that was uh, uh, 70 years ago. You'd learn about materials. You could make all kinds of materials in car. We now accept all kinds of materials, not just steel or tin or plastic or com hybrid materials, or they could be made of anything. The various designs of cars and designers of cars, the cost of cars, the economics of cars. You could take cars for the rest of your life and learn anything you wanted. The electronic systems in the cars now, the fact that you have TV sets or you have computers for sure and big screens and how many motors there are. There's four or five batteries. I had a the whole time during, I just learned this, the whole time during COVID, 
I had to have a trickle of electricity come into my car because there's four separate batteries that will run down in a in my one car to run all the electronics. Not just one battery, it runs up four different batteries. Now, take another subject. You can take any subject and I can tell you the same story. And that's just ad hoc. That's off the top of my head. That's not something I memorized because yeah. I can't memorize anything. And I don't take notes. The educational system is bankrupt. What do people say? Oh, it would be much better if we had smaller classrooms. No, no, be bigger, better if we had bigger classroom and teach, you know, remotely. No, 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 no. It would be better if we taught more band and more music and more sports or more of this. No, no, it would be better if we paid teachers more money. No, it would be better. All these reasons, not one of them has to do with learning. That's interesting. Paying teachers more money, does that make a better teacher? Does a bigger classroom, a smaller classroom? What, you know, what makes, where does the word learning come out? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're right. You're taught by a teacher who went to a school of education, who went to a school of education, who went to a school of education, yeah. who learned things all the way down, and there's no progress along that way. Yeah. They're doing what they know how to do. Your teacher in in, in in any university, they teach about their expertise, not about their desire to expand or go into unknown territory. Now, Lou Kahn comes back into this because he says, he will stop teaching the moment he learns less than the students. When I taught, I taught a lot. I was dean of a school and I taught at Penn, Princeton, Cornell, UCLA, USC, Cal Poly Pomona, uh, Washington University, St. Louis, and Cambridge University. And I never taught what I knew about. I taught about, I thought it was something I wanted to learn about, and I taught it along with the students. So I was enthusiastic about the process. Yeah, because you learned something. Exactly. Yeah. That's, incre that's incredible. I was thinking about this. In 1976, you coined the, uh, the term information architecture. Information architecture and the information architect. I coined that and I got a lot of pushback from the design community uh, around the world, particularly in Germany and Holland. And they want to know if I was going to charge a fee for using that word. I mean, such a stupid question. Uh, when they could look at the books I had done up to then, it was probably 40 and I don't even copyright them. I came up with that term, not because I was an architect, but that architect symbolically uh, represents something that has, has to work and has a discipline and a, a set of rules, but a structure to the thinking of how to solve a problem. Information design Design at that time, for cer certainly, and even today, I have no idea what's inside my iPhone. What's inside is not expressed on the outside. In the dark, it's hard to put the charge thing in here. Nothing has to do with it working. A designer takes the stuff and tries to squeeze it in together and then makes a package around it. So I'm buying Apple's aesthetic taste of what they think of pretty packages. What they advertise when it comes out is the rounded corner and how this is set in, and the colors it comes in. They're, they're, it's just sham. I mean, if a battery is so important, why not make an electric car out of a battery? Why isn't the whole car a battery? And you put a few cushions in the battery for sitting. Why do you build a car 
that looks beautiful, right? And then you have to put a battery in it. Uh, I mean, I find it such a backwards mentality of why things are. This is based on its battery. The battery should be expressed. Lucan said, anytime you're in any room, you should know how the room is made. Half of the cost of the building you're in is the mechanical equipment. HVAC costs half of the total cost of the building. And then they hide it by hanging a ceiling. It's not <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just illogical to me. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting. So... I'm about trying to express what I do. So, Richard, what is your your take then in, in today's, uh, let's say, society here? We have civil unrest. We had this uh, election and we have all this uh, fake news and everything. And it seems to me that... I understand the question. I'll give you the answer before you're here. <laughs> there are doctors. People invest money. There's lawyers. There's politicians. There's situations, there's COVID, there's other diseases, there's other laws, there's taxation, there's insurance, there's reverse mortgages, there's all kinds of things in our life, right? Not one of those is explained. Now, that was a very simple sentence. The system of explanation is broken totally, and the system of explanation is not part of our learning experience. So we're all being belittled by smart, by people who have expertise that I wouldn't want to have dinner with, even if they were paying. Uh (laughs) My lawyer, I can't understand. I make a will. I don't know the initials or the acronyms of other things and trusts and why I should do this with my house or something else. My financial advisor from JP Morgan's lovely woman. I can't understand. I say, I tell her what I want and she answers me back with what she sells. I can't, I can't understand uh, doctors. They don't make anything understandable to me. You know, he just wants to pluck down pools and pills and he doesn't do any of the interaction with those pills with other pills. And there's nothing explained. So I have, there's going to be a center, which you probably don't know about, which I was asked about. Uh, and I'll, I'll just get up and I'll show you something. Okay. Can you see that? Here's me. Yeah. Okay. And it's, this is the first announcement book with, with the president's note and the message and everything else. Oh my goodness. It. It's a physical center. Really, they're raising funds. They're going to build it. And it's going to give doctorates and master's degree in explaining. Yeah. It's not aimed at designers. It's aimed at somebody graduates Wharton. So where is it going to be? Rochester Institute of Technology. Wow. Congratulations. Well, I didn't give them money and I didn't ask them. You inspired them. Ah, it just happened. <laughs> and I've only, I've only been there once in 1973. And I know it's 1973 because somebody sent me an article that was in the local Rochester paper yeah. that talked about my speech. And I was there in 1973 to give a speech. I haven't been back. I haven't been back since they've done this. Yeah. But you see, I love what you said there in your, uh, let me see here in my notes. You did a memorial speech for uh, Charles Eames. And you said if there ever was, you said in Remembrance piece in 1978, if there ever was a professor of curiosity or a dean of learning or president of imagination or commissioner of magic, 
they would all be Charles Eames. And I think... Is that beautiful or what? Am I a good writer or not? <laughs> I thought, no, I think that was a lovely eulogy for him. I'm telling you this because I read it because this person is doing this book and brought this to my attention. And I said, that's really lovely. But I'm saying it the same way you're saying it. I'm not bragging about it. It just so happens it was done. I happen to have done it, but I don't remember doing it. And I read it and I think, wow, I couldn't do that today. <laughs> But we need some some kind of an information architect if we're going to survive, right? We don't need anything. We desire things. The world would go on fine without me knowing how to use this. Yeah. The whole world would go on without these. But I find it interesting if you understand things. It's just interest. We don't have to progress. We don't have to get fancy, smaller and smaller iPhones. We don't have to have better and better cars. We don't have to have any of these things. We don't have to eat more, make more, have bigger buildings or taller buildings. We don't need those things. We desire to have them. So some people do it. Some of it interests me and some of it doesn't interest me at all. Yes, I. it is true that the doctor and the lawyer and the Indian chief and the and, and you and investment brokers and this person, do not explain anything in a way that I can understand it. But I'm here. I'll get along. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm not a preacher. Okay. <laughs> and it's really because I don't give a shit. I care. And I'm going to go back to something now. This is the third time I've said it. I care about my next idea. Yeah. Apropos that, what is your next idea? Working on it. Always, always have a next idea. I've done 90 books and 40 conferences. I always have a next idea. So what, 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 is, what is in your hummingbird mind? I'm inventing how to do a center, which is, is not based on a better version of, of anything that's been done. For instance, yesterday I had a conversation and I said they wanted, they were talking about, well, we need a board of advisors and a board of directors and things like that. I said, no, <laughs> you say you need that because you've always had that. Why don't, why don't we invite... 50 or 60 amazing people that I know, because I know people. And let's say, here's the deal, guys. You don't have to come to any meeting, and we're not asking you for any money. We would like to list you here, and we'd like to be able to get you on the phone, and we'd like you to call each other. If you're interested in the ideas that come out about explaining things, and you're all in different fields, some of your business, some of you, one was head of Ford, one was... There's business people, there's Yo-Yo Ma, there's graphic designers, there's all, all manner of people. Yeah. We'll just list you as muses, which is also part of the word amusement. How do we do a school that has no classrooms? And I, and I say, let's just use some of the other classrooms that are in the university and use somebody's auditorium. And we get to know those schools too. But let's have at least the most amazing place that the whole ground floor of the building that we leave open, open air, but we heat the seats because they have hard winters and we have ways of cooling it, but it's outside. You walk through it as you, because the thing is located right near the main entrance to the university. And you can sit down there by yourself or with three or four other people. Hmm. And it's like a 22nd century version of the Spanish stairs. And that, conversation among people 
is the essence of a university and the essence of explaining things to each other. And some of our muses, when they come to town, can sit there and some of the faculty we get can just be there and you can have a conversation with them. Or you can go up in the building and we have a vast archive. I have about 30 or 40 people who are going to give us all their archives and everything is going to be off the cloud and a kind of archive that, so you, we will, there's a school right next to where this building is going to be, which is one of the, the, the it's either first or second best school of, of uh, animation in the country. It's called Magic, mm-hmm. but it's part of Rochester Institute of Technology. Mm-hmm. So you're going to learn in two dimensions, three dimensions, and in animation, four dimensions, how do, what are the modalities for explaining things? What do you need to explain over time, which is when you need the ability to seamlessly and easy give instructions to somebody to take this information that the right way to show it is in a short 30 second film or something. Of how to teach the graduate of, of, uh, of Wharton how to make what he does understandable to his clients. But he doesn't have to become a designer and do it himself. He has to get it done. I just told you, I don't know how to do anything. I get a lot done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no, but that's very serious. I'm not good at anything. I told you, I can't type. I can't read a hard book. I can't use my iPhone. I can hardly, somebody set this up. I don't know how to use a computer. I don't do anything well. I don't dress well. I don't talk well. I don't, I'm not socialized, but it's been fine. <laughs> but I know how to get things done. That's what the school is going to be about. Wow. How do you, how do you get it done? That's very exciting. How do you communicate with another human being? Nobody teaches you that. Has anybody ever taught you how to make a phone call? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no. This is a very serious question. Yeah. Nobody's taught you how to do that. Not no. really, no. Do you know a lot of people are lousy on the phone? <laughs> they don't get to a point where they say, how's everything going? Yeah. What, is the, what does, you just tell me what that means, and I'll take everything I said back. <laughs> What does that question mean? And today it was said probably already a hundred million times. What does it mean? Tell me what it means. Yeah. Well, I guess it's sort of another a, one. I'll give you another one. Uh, Keeping busy. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's it doesn't really mean anything, but it's an expression of that you care about the person that you. No, are. it isn't. If you cared <laughs> about him, you wouldn't ask that question. That is an impersonal, personal question. It's a faux question, and therefore it's a lie. Yeah. Because it can't be answered. No, that, uh, uh. no, I'm making a, a, a big point because if you begin a conversation that way, which yeah. people do, yeah. you don't know a fucking thing about the structure of communication or conversation or making a phone call or seeing somebody in person. Yeah, And you probably just respond with a lie too. I'm great. I'm doing very well. I'm very busy. You're not. So what you tell back is a lie. Exactly. So we started off by lying to each other. Yeah. I gave a speech in, there's a nice, a rather nice conference called the Nantucket Project. And I gave, I had a conversation with uh, this multi, multi-billionaire who does more, who's brilliant. And he's one of, one of my very best friends. Uh, and I have like five friends. So it's not saying it's one of my very best friends. And I'm talking about a thousand people and not about four or five people. Okay. I always say I have five and I can only think of four. <laughs> so I lied a little bit there to make it seem I could put my whole hand up. We had a, 
we were had a conversation. It was supposed to last an hour. I wasn't watching my time. We were just sitting talking. It was unplanned. We had no subject, no agenda. We were just having a conversation in front of 300, 400 people. But we know each other and we love each other. And I just forgot about the audience. I'm just saying things to him and all. And I see they're waving the background that the hour is up. I said, oh, they're telling me my hour is up. Thank goodness, because I really got to pee. <laughs> um, there was a little titter, but not much, because they knew I was telling the truth. Yeah. I'm an old man. I got to pee. <laughs> uh, what I'm saying is telling the truth doesn't get you into trouble in any way or makes you seem odd. People understand that you're just telling the truth. The truth is astonishingly powerful. Yeah. Also why I'm on no boards and why I'm never asked to do anything because nobody really wants me around except one-to-one -one in a conversation because it's very uncomfortable. <laughs> I think it's very comfortable. I think it's very inspiring. One to one, no, one to one is very comfortable. Yeah. If it's a board of directors or if it's a group of people, it's not so comfortable. You saw me in New York when I was on the stage, yeah. and I introduce people, and I take sometimes take people off the stage because they're talking too long. And I told the truth, and everybody in the audience knew I was telling the truth up there. When something was good, I said it was really good. I know that, and I've also read in your in your interviews here that you are you are a truth uh, teller, and you don't you don't mess around. <laughs> But can I ask you one thing, though? You've received a number of, of awards. Is there any award that means something very special to you? There's two. Th when you say that, uh, two come to mind. Yeah. One was the Lifetime Achievement from the Smithsonian and the Cooper Hewitt for design. And the Lifetime Achievement at that time, they don't give that award anymore. But that, that, was, that was important because that was a sort of a rare award that you know that Massimo Vignelli got and Frank Gehry got. My buddies, Frank gave it to me that night. Uh, that my buddies got, you know, some of them. And wow. It was a rarefied award and everybody was there. It was very, I, and that's about the top thing I can ever get in my life. So, cause I, no, I, mean, I have gotten the gold medal from all, from AIGA and the AIA. The Science Museum Award was interesting because it was with Tim Berners-Lee and the three of us got the 50th anniversary award. Tim Berners-Lee invented the internet and Mayor Gold, uh, Bloomberg and myself from a science museum. The second one really, it was getting an honorary doctorate and giving the key keynote or the commencement speech at a university uh, at, uh, uh, called Babson, which is a university that is, it costs more than uh, Harvard uh, to go to. And it, it's, a it's a, not a university, it's a college because it's not a full university. They just give masters and doctorates, the same as this, in innovation. That was nice to be thought of uh, outside of what everybody thinks my expertise is, which is running conferences or design or graphic design or architecture, that kind of stuff. I, I like being honored for people to understand that I, I understand things and I see patterns, not subjects. You know, if, if you float and you're old, uh, you get awards. By the way, I will tell you, because I only have a few minutes, I won't tell you this now, but if you ever want to hear it, I did a conference that was magnitudes better than TED, and I did one of them, I did it so well, and it was called Intellectual Jazz. Yeah. And I did that conference, and that was the best conference I ever did. That was the mystery conference when you invited people and that you were put... I didn't really announce it. No. <laughs> and the speakers weren't told what was 
who was going to be there and not to prepare. And it was held in a place they would never go. And they had to be bused every day from the hotel 13 miles. It was everything against it. And it was by far the best conference and the best presenters I ever had. Well, that, that says a lot about how you can orchestrate uh, an interaction. I know how to do that. I know how to do that show. Yeah. Well, Richard, it's been an honor to have you on the show. I well, you can tell, you can give out my email address because I love to hear from people. Yeah. Oh, I, I would be happy to. So if you want, I'll give it to you. If you leave it, you can cut it out and put it on the screen. You can do whatever you want. RSW. Yeah. My initials at Werman, W-U-R-N.com. Yeah. Com. Easy. Yeah. But the book get it mine you haven't seen the book called understanding understanding no we talked about that last week uh, get, get a used copy try to find a used copy online but i think you might like it oh i think i would love it it's quite different than any other book i've done yeah i'm looking forward to that well thank you so much richard for doing this okay nice talking to you again after so many years yes thank you <laughs> this is art insiders new york and my name is anders holst if you enjoyed this episode and have family and friends who love New York and are passionate about the world of art, design and architecture in the city, please spread the word by following us on artinsidersnewyork.com or liking us on our Facebook page, Art Insiders New York, where we publish newsworthy material all the time. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This episode was produced by UOM LLC, copyright 2021.